Stay standing. Let's pray. Papa, we can't thank you enough. So amazing. So divine. For the Jesus died for us. Thank you that you gather us together. And you speak to us through your word. And we pray that you be speaking to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take a seat. And do open your Bibles up to the book of James, our New Testament reading. And also take your service supplements. Inside there is a little outline of where we're going today. God is good. God is good. It's something that I think any Christian could tell you. It's a basic fact that we're all sure about. God is good. We sing and shout it. God is good. We celebrate. God is good. It's something something instinctively that we know is true. And yet, many people in the world would disagree with that statement. Take, for example, the French poet Baudelaire. Charles Baudelaire looked at the world around him and he saw pain and sorrow and sin and wickedness. And he thought, in a world like this, how could there be a good God? And he came to the astonishing conclusion, if God exists, he is the devil. That's what Baudelaire said. But it's not only French poets that have a hard time believing that God is good. When I was a student in Oxford, on Friday evenings often I would go around the streets with some friends of mine to meet the homeless community. We would take Bibles and hot drinks, and we'd try to talk to them about the good news of Jesus Christ. But very sadly, a lot of these people whom we met had gone through awful things in their lives. They had suffered pain, rejection, even abuse, even from members of their own family. And when we tried to tell them about God, sometimes they would just laugh. Others quietly say, How can God be good after all he's put me through? It's the unanswerable paradox, so said my philosophy tutor. It's the unanswerable paradox. How can God be good and all-powerful? How can God be all-powerful to have made all things and yet there to be sin in this world? Because if God has made everything, then God has made sin. And therefore God is guilty. God can't be all-powerful and all-good at the same time. I wonder what you would say to someone who gave you that argument. It seems quite a hard one to refute, doesn't it? I wonder what you would say if, perhaps at work tomorrow, one of your friends and is talking with you, and you get onto the subject, oh, what were you doing on the weekend? And you say, well, I went to church, and we were learning, we were learning about God. We were learning that God is good. And your friend replies, well, I hope this doesn't offend you, but actually I find it quite hard to accept God is good. Just look at today's news. More crime, murder, there's lying in politicians and politics, and you've got 
bureaucracy on the rise, which is slowing everything down. But worse than that, we've got fraud. It doesn't seem to be a faith fair world. I don't understand how God can be good if he lets things like this happen. And perhaps you would say, I don't know all the answers myself. I don't, I don't know how it fits together that God on the one hand is good, and on the other hand he's powerful. I, I know it's true. I believe it. I don't know how it fits together. Maybe, maybe, if you look in the Bible, you could find some answers. I know that God has given us the Bible. It has everything that we need to know. So perhaps, have a read there, you might find the answer to your question. That would be a good thing to say. And imagine the next day, your friend comes up to you and says, you know what? I took your advice. Yesterday, I started to read the Bible, and I read the first chapter. And you know what? You're right. God is in control of everything. Just as you said, I read in Genesis chapter 1 how God spoke. And out of nothing came the entire world. He said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke, and there were the birds, and the plants, and the animals. He spoke, and humans appeared. He spoke. And there were gardens and trees. God is in control. God has made everything. Well, the next day, your friend comes to you again. And he says, you know what? I've now read Genesis chapter 2, and you're right again. God is good. God is so good. I read about the Garden of Eden, this wonderful place that God made. It was beautiful. There were trees, there was gold, there were winding rivers. There was everything you could ask for, and into that he put the man that he had made, and he gave him everything he needed. He even gave him a wife. What a good God he is. I can imagine if you were anything like me, in your prayers that night, you would be saying something like this. Oh God, this is amazing. It's amazing what you've taught my friends. He's only read two chapters of the Bible. Oh, have you taught him so much? God, I just can't wait till he gets to John 3.16. But the next day, everything changes. You talk to your friend and he says to you, I've got one word for you. Guilty. God is guilty. What on earth do you mean, you say? No, God is guilty. I've read Genesis chapter 3. Adam eats from the tree of which he's commanded not to eat. But God made him do it. What on earth do you mean, you say? God did it. He's guilty on at least three counts. Number one, Adam ate from the tree, but who put the tree there? God put the tree there. If God hadn't put the tree there, then Adam couldn't have eaten from it, and Adam couldn't have sinned. So God is responsible. Strike one. What's more? Well, why did Adam eat from the tree? It's because Eve told him to. And where did she come from? Well, God put her there, didn't he? If God hadn't put Eve there, he would never have eaten from the tree, and so he wouldn't have committed the sin. God is responsible. Strike two. And why did Eve do it? It was the snake. I've read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I know that God made all things. He must have made the snake too. If God had not made the snake, then Eve would not have sinned. Strike three. God is guilty as charged. It's quite a serious accusation, isn't it? To say that God tempts us to sin. In fact, if God tempts us to sin, he must be guilty of sin himself. Jesus says something along the same lines. Do you remember 
And he said, it would be better for you to have a large millstone hung around your neck and for you to be thrown into the depths of the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. If I cause you to sin, I share in the guilt. And if God tempts me, God is guilty too. If God tempts me to sin, then God is not good. So, it's an important question to ask. Does God tempt me? And the good news for us today is I think that hypothetical workplace situation actually happened 2,000 years ago, or something like it. Because, as far as I can tell, James overheard a conversation a bit like that. And today, in this part of his letter, he's going to give us the answer. Does God tempt us to sin? Well, no, he doesn't, says James. Absolutely not. Well, how, James, can you be so sure? It's because God is good. Absolutely good. Read with me. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Last week, do you remember, we were looking at trials. James was telling us that we can go through trials in our lives. It would be very painful as Christians to go through trials. But he gave us three words to hang on to. When you're going through trials, don't give up. Don't give up. But of course, the flip side of trials is temptations. Trials and temptations are like two sides of the same coin. And again, this week, James gives us three more words. When being tempted, don't blame God. Why not? Oh, what is blame? We blame people when we accuse them of evil motives. It's those Indonesians, we say. They're burning all their trees down in Sumatra, and they don't care a thing about us. All the fumes are coming over and making our lives an absolute misery. And it's all their fault. They don't care. We blame when we say that someone else has an evil motive. But God has no evil motive. God is good. He is so good that he hates all evil. No evil can tempt him. And he certainly does not tempt us. James has in fact been preparing us for this very statement in the first 12 verses of this letter, talking about trials. We think of trials as bad things. But God actually only allows us to go through trials for a good reason. Do you remember that picture that Tim gave us last week of the hammer? And hammered and hammered and hammered again, put in the flame, taken out, hammered and hammered and hammered again, every time getting stronger and stronger. And the reason that God allows us to go through trials is so that our faith can get stronger and stronger as we trust in Him. And why is that so important? Well, verse 12 tells us. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in the trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Every trial that we go through as a Christian is an opportunity, an opportunity to show our love for God. But of course, it's not only an opportunity. It's also a temptation. Because with every trial, there's an easy way out. The easy way is to disobey. 
I'm sure you've all met Gordon. Gordon, sitting on the front row, MCing for us today. He came out to Malaysia with me eight days ago, it was now. And uh, let me tell you, he is very excited to be here. In fact, there are so many things he's hoping that he might be able to do here in Malaysia that he could just never, ever do back in England. Things like getting a suntan in the winter. Eating roti chanai. Drinking durian milkshake. Things like maybe even passing his driving test. You see, Gordon has heard a rumour. A rumour that actually it's quite easy to pass your driving test here in Malaysia. And uh, given the driving that he's seen since arriving here, he has no reason to doubt that's true. Yeah, that's right. Tim has been doing most of the driving. Anyway, imagine Gordon decides he's going to book himself a driving exam here in Malaysia. He gets in the car. He does all his manoeuvres. It seems to go very well. He pulls up his car on the side of the road. and At the end, he looks expectantly at the, at the examiner, thinking, I can't believe it. Maybe this time it actually passed. And he looks up and the instructor says, yes, Gordon, very well driven. I have this very well driven indeed. Give me 200 ringgit and I'll give you a pass. Well, Gordon's driving test is over. But now another test has begun. And this time something far more important is being tested. Not his driving skills. This time it's his love. God. Will Gordon do the right thing? Or will he pay the bribe? I wonder what you think. Let's let's think what the cost is. What's at stake here in this decision? What's going through Gordon's mind as he faces this temptation? Firstly, this is reputation. Gordon's thinking, Oh no, we can't we can't fail again. I've already failed, oh, let's, let's say some ridiculous number of times. I've already failed three times in England before. If I fail again, in Malaysia, well, what are my friends going to think of me if they find out? I would be the laughing stock of everybody. His reputation is on the line. But what's more, so or so, is his cash. It's going to be very expensive for one to go and pay for more and more lessons and and another exam, and given the, his success so far, he probably won't pass that one either. Yet, he's got a chance now for a mere 200 ringgit. That's not even 30 pounds. Less than 30 pounds to pass his driving test at last. That would be a great saving of money. And let's just suppose that Gordon has got a job lined up to go back to when he finishes here next year. One problem. It requires a driving license. And if he doesn't pass this driving test, he's going to lose the job. He says a lot at stake. His reputation, his money, his job. And actually, Gordon knows he deserves to pass. This test went really well. Even the examiner said so. And his parents and friends say that he's a good driver. And he's far better than most of the drivers he's met out here. And as he's thinking about all these things, there are little voices in his head. One of them says, Gordon, go on. Pay the bribe. You can always make it up with God afterwards. Another voice says, Look, Gordon, if you really must think about God, he's the one that put you in this situation anyway. It's clear that he wants you to pay the bribe. Otherwise, he would have given you a different examiner, wouldn't he? Anyway, just, just think of it as like 
an extra fee you have to pay. Something wrong. What Gordon needs to hear at this moment is the voice of the Holy Spirit. He needs to be told, Gordon, remember, God is good. God does not tempt you to sin. The only reason that God is allowing you to go through this trial is to give you the chance to show him just how much you love him. Yes, it's going to be tough. He's not rising on this decision. But God knows how tough it's going to be. And just imagine how delighted he's going to be with you if you stand firm. Imagine him up in the throne room, gathering all the angels around and pointing down, look, he says, look at Gordon, standing firm. There's my boy. Yes, it's going to be tough. And it's also going to be costly. But again, God knows the cost. And you can trust God to abundantly reward you for being faithful to him. There's a girl who used to go to smack. And she was in a very similar situation to this one. She failed her first driving test because she would not pay the bribe. She failed her second driving test because she would not pay the bribe. The third driving test, again, she would not pay the bribe and the examiner shouted at her, told her that she was arrogant. He threw the paper down on her lap and she looked and it said, Pass. Yes. God is good. God does not tempt us. God only allows us to go through trials that we can show our love for him and to build up our faith. When you're going through trials, when you're tempted to bribe or be bribed or do any other thing that is wrong, remember this. God is good. But the sad thing is, even as Christians, so often we do sin. We do let God down inexcusably, despite all these good motivations that God has given us to do what is right. And James is very clear why. God is good, but, point two, we are bad. We've seen that trials can be good news. Testing leads to perseverance, and perseverance to maturity and the crown of life. But there's another possibility. Another possible sequence that God doesn't want us to follow, but it's there in verses 14 and 15. Let me read them to you. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The other possibility. And the temptation is to follow our desires. Our desires will lead to sin and sin to death. And by death, James means eternal death, separation from God and every one of his good gifts forever. It's an absolutely horrific place to go. And they will start so innocently with our desires. Imagine a fish, a hungry fish, swimming to a lake. And it looks in there, dangling before it, is a worm. Ooh, a juicy, tasty looking worm, he thinks. And he swims towards the worm, and he bites onto it, and ah! There's this huge fisherman's hook spearing him through his mouth. The fish has been caught. He struggles and struggles with all his might, but 
it is no use whatsoever. You will be reeled in to his death. We must watch our desires. They may be innocent desires, like hunger, or tiredness, and they could in themselves be evil desires, like greed, or laziness. But either way, our desires have the power to tempt us, and to entice us, and to lead us to sin. In fact, the Bible traces the very first human sin back to a mixture of human desires. We read about it in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 verse 6 says this. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Did she what Eve did then? She decided she would follow her desires rather than God's good commands. And so Eve sinned and became a sinner. And all of us here today have been following her example ever since. All of us too are sinners. Desire is to sin. Well, what is a sinner? What is sin? Sin is the attitude that simply says, I'm going to do things my way. I don't particularly care what God has to say about it, actually. We sin when we come to that crossroads. Which way are we going to go? God's way or my way? Who is going to be in control of my life at that moment? Am I going to let God be in control? Or am I going to take control myself? And of course, in practice, what that means is, am I going to let my own desires run my life for me? It's very sad, but that is, in fact, what we see in the world around us. The world is driven by desires. Desire for popularity, for success, for wealth, for fame. These are things that make the world go round. And tragically, these are things that are found in the church as well. James, throughout this letter, exposes sin after sin after sin, and it's a very uncomfortable letter for us to read. And the next paragraph that we'll come to next week, James points out the sin of losing your temper, of uncontrolled anger, which he sees amongst Christians in this church. The next paragraph, he talks about those who listen so eagerly to God but just can't be bothered to obey what he has to say. The next paragraph, those who can't control their tongues, who spit forth venomous words. Next paragraph, those who show partiality and favoritism to the rich and famous, and just ignore the insignificant and poor. Next paragraph, they're loveless. Next paragraph, they're hypocrites. And so it goes on and on and on throughout the letter. James is a very harsh letter for us to read, because we too are very simple people. And what is our response when our sins are pointed out? Well, it's the same response as that of Adam. When God confronted him about sin, Adam passed the blame. But James will not let us do that. James makes us face reality. We can't blame God for our sin. God is good. Nor, do you notice, does James bring the devil into it. No, my sin is my fault. I sin, and I have been sinning from the day I'm born to the day I die. 
From this side of the fall until the day I reach heaven, sin is a part of who I am. I am a sinner. I don't just do bad things. I am bad. And so are you. Now this second point, that we are bad, is perhaps even harder for the world to accept than the first, that God is good. So much more flattering, isn't it, for us to think of ourselves as basically good people that tend to do the right things and now and again we slip up. That's the way we like to think. The evil people, if such evil people exist, well, they are the extremists. They are the suicide bombers, the terrorists. They're mad. And even they have only turned out that way because society has let them down. That's what the world thinks. And so, says the government, we must stamp out antisocial behaviour. What we need is more opportunities in life, better education, better jobs, health system. And, of course, some of these things might reduce crime and make the world a better place to live in. But none of them can deal with the problem of my heart. Educate me, and all you get is an educated sinner. Give me good prospects in life, you get a satisfied sinner, a good job, and I'm a happy and rich sinner. But I'm still a sinner. I'll still follow my desires and not God's desires. And sin leads to death. And death means, as we've seen, separation from God and all his goodness and kindness. That's what Adam and Eve found, wasn't it, in the Garden of Eden. They were banished and cut off from God. And we might think, well, God, that's hardly very fair. All they've done is just eaten one bit of fruit. Come back and have it. But when we remember how kind and good God has already been to them, well, then we start to see something of the magnitude of that sin. It's bad enough when a child sins against his teacher, who looks after him just a few hours a day. How much more abhorrent is it when a child goes home and defies his parents, his parents who love him, care for him, who brought him up, give him everything he needs, and shower him with goodness and kindness and love. And how much worse again when we let down God and we go our own way, turning away from him. And he gave us our teachers and our parents. He gave us life and health and breath and every good thing. It's when we remember that God is good that we come to see how bad we truly are. The sin is so bad because God is so good. And because God is so good, he hates evil so much that he must punish it all. And the fair punishment that each of us deserves is death. The death sentence of our sin. Well, those two facts that we've considered, that God is good and that we are bad, sit very uncomfortably with the world today. But the Bible teaches them clearly. And once we believe and understand them to be true, then the way is paved the third and wonderful fact. Because God hasn't changed. God still loves us. God is still Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And this is perhaps the biggest surprise of all. How does James, did you notice? Can you notice how James addresses this bunch of loveless, hypocritical, angry, selfish Christians? Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Beloved, certainly, of James, and also, more wonderfully of all, of God. And so are we. The very existence of this letter proves that God loves us. He's given us the letter of James to warn us, to turn from sin, to put our faith in Jesus, to escape the eternal death sentence that we deserve. That shows that God loves us so much. We are his beloved. And how does a man treat his beloved fiancée? Well, surely one thing he does is to shower her with good gifts. And that is exactly what God does for us. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Over the last month, I have been particularly blessed to enjoy so many good gifts that I've not been able to enjoy for a very long time. When I was back in the UK, I was able to spend time with my family and with my friends. I was able to take a tour around London, see the sights of Cambridge. I was even able to use this wonderful invention called a knife to cut up my food. All these, the Bible says, all these experiences are good gifts from God to thank him for. And since getting back to Malaysia, God has been giving me a whole new range of gifts to enjoy. Things like warm weather, salmon fish teppanyaki, cheap cinema chips and haircuts, and a squash court right at my doorstep, and time with all my friends here at SMAC. And these are things to thank God for. In fact, I have the privilege right now in front of all of you of thanking God for each and every one of them. It was a few years ago in Oxford when I really came to understand that we are to thank God for the good gifts he gives us. And it completely transformed my life. And now when something good happens to me, or when I get an email from a friend telling me about something wonderful that's happened in their life, I try to stop for a moment and thank God for being so kind. It makes such a difference to see every good thing as a gift given by God to me because he loves me. It all sounds very lovely, but I can imagine some of my friends back home listening, perhaps online, to this sermon and uh, teasing me for saying all that. Come on, Chris, they say. You can't be serious. If I understand you correctly, and I think I do, you've been saying that God is in control of absolutely everything. So, when good things happen, you give him thanks. Fair enough, fair enough, I suppose. And when bad things happen, oh, he's off the hook. You don't blame him anymore. Come on, play fair, be consistent. You can't just pick and choose whether you're going to thank him or blame him. You've got to just be all or nothing. To which, I suppose all I can say is, well, I'm just saying what the Bible says. Good things happen. We are to thank God. And if bad things happen, well, don't blame God. And if you think I'm being inconsistent, well, well, frankly, so are you. Because when bad things happen, we are so quick to point the finger and say God is responsible. 
and good things happen, you take all the credit for yourself. Of course, God is not inconsistent, and James reminds us of this in the next verse. God is in fact powerful and unchanging. Verse 17. Again, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I wonder what you think of when you look up at the night sky and see the stars. Well, actually in KL, you probably don't see the stars. But if you go out to Tassic, Chile, and you look up there, you will see thousands of stars. In fact, last year when I was there, I saw the Milky Way. I've never seen it before. What do you think when you look up and see the stars? I wonder if anybody here has seen the film The Lion King. If you have, you'll know there's a scene there where Pumba and Timon lying on the ground, looking up at the night sky. And Pumbaa turns to Timon and says, Timon, did you ever wonder what the stars are? And Timon's quite confident. Wonder? I don't wonder, I know. They're fireflies that got caught up there in all that bluish black stuff. Ah, gee, said Pumbaa. And I always thought there were great balls of gas burning billions of miles away. Now, as a physics graduate, I tell you that Pumbaa was, scientifically speaking, closer to the truth than was Timon. But when James looks up at the stars, he doesn't think scientifically. He doesn't think of physics, but instead he thinks of God. And he wonders, why did God make them all? He calls God here the Father of Lights, but why are they there? He didn't have to make the stars, and yet he did. In fact, he made a whole universe full of them. Why? So the answer is, they're a picture lesson for us. In fact, we've been singing about it earlier. From the moment of creation to the present day, his divinity and power are here on display. The moon and the stars are there, so that even when the sun goes down, we can look up and give God thanks for his good creation. God was good in the beginning. And God is still good. And even when we are going through times of darkness and shadows, and we can't see the light, and we find things hard, there's always something that we can thank God for. And if you're a Christian here today, James says, what he tells us in verse 18, what happens? We can always thank God for our salvation. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits species. James says that it was of God's own will that we were saved. Our salvation is a gift from him. It might seem surprising at first when we read those words that God chose us. Surely we think we chose God, didn't we? I'm sure there are many people here that can clearly remember the day, if not the very moment, when you turned from sin to Christ, to live his way, to do your best to treat him as your king, and to trust him to save you from the death that you deserve, because of his death for you on the cross. And that, if you can remember that day, is a real and valid and important day in your life. That's the day you became a Christian, the day that God wiped out your sins. And yet, 
we can look at it from a different perspective, rather than from our perspective, from God's. And that's what James is doing here. James says that God actually chose us by his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth, that is the gospel. And again, that's something we sang about earlier. Do you know when it was that God chose you? If you're believing in Jesus today, it's because God chose you even before the universe was made. You loved me when you spun the stars into motion. You loved me when you parted land and sea, before night and day, before time and space. You had chosen me, set aside a place in heaven that bears my name. It's amazing, isn't it, that God would do that for us? It's especially amazing when we remember how bad we are, and yet God loves us anyway. You loved me when my heart was turned against you. You loved me even though my eyes were blind. You called me your child, led me by the hand, made yourself be known, let me understand forgiveness that comes from you. In fact, the Bible says, we're so sinful that it has to be this way. It has to be that God chose us, because if he had not first chosen us, we would never have chosen him. We're so wicked in our hearts that we would, by nature, prefer to go our own way, even to death and judgment and hell forever, rather than let God take control of us and lead us into eternal life. That's how bad we are. And God knew that when he chose us. He knew all the sins that we would commit before and after becoming Christians. And yet he loved us anyway. God is so good. And we know that because we are so bad. And what confidence that gives us as well. Because if he chose us by his will, then salvation begins, continues and ends entirely within God's will. And so until God's will changes, we are all absolutely safe. And we've already seen that with God, there is no variation of change like shifting shadows. God will not change his mind. As Christians, believers in Jesus, we are safe. From the beginning of the world to the end. And finally, we see God's goodness to us in the reason why he chose us. He chose us not because of anything good that we've done. He chose us that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, the first part of the harvest, the first fruits were brought to God. They were specially his, his special portion that belonged to him. And so are we as Christians. We belong to God in a special way, by creation and by salvation. We're now privileged to be under God's protection and to have the joy of representing God to the world around us. In the coming weeks, as we look through James, we'll see what that looks like in practice to represent God to the watching world in our lives, our words, and our actions. But what are we going to take home for this week from this passage? So let's close with three quick points in conclusion. Number one, don't blame God. We live in a fallen world, and this week, you will come across trials and temptations. When they come, remember, God is good. And then God. Number two, confess your sins. Because we are bad. When you do wrong, 
and let go down inexcusably, as all of us do. Remember that. Remember that we are guilty, and admit it to God. Tell him, God, I am so sorry that I did that. I know that I'm guilty, but I thank you that Jesus died for me. Please forgive me my sin, and help me to live for you. Never do that again by your help. Help me to live for you for the rest of my days. In Jesus' name, amen. In a short while, we're going to join together uh, with the words of confession on the screen. And you'll notice that it follows the same pattern as this passage of Scripture. God has loved us with an everlasting love. God is good. But we are bad. We have gone our own way and broken your laws. But God is still good. For the sake of your Son, who died for us, Forgive us, cleanse us, and change us. Admit your sins. Thank God. Thank God this week, because he is good, and he showers you with many, many good things. But especially, thank him for your salvation. Thank him that he chose you before the world began, and he's going to keep you safe to the very, very end. And if a friend were to ask you at work this week, why are you so confident that you're going to heaven? You can say, because Jesus died for me. And if your friend asks, but why did Jesus die? Simple. Because God is good, we are bad, but God is still good. And Father, we thank you and praise you that you are so good so good to us. You saved us when we didn't deserve it. And you brought us to new birth through the word of truth. That you changed us on the inside to believe the gospel and to put our faith in Jesus. And we pray, Father, that we would live this week as at first fruits. That we will be a witness to you and to your love in the world around us. We will be aware of your good gifts. How can you call them? We will be quick to admit our sins. And we will be quick. The light in you, what Jesus has done. In his name we pray. Amen.